Welcome to Sports with Friends. This is episode 412, and today we are talking to an acclaimed director, film editor, somebody who's worked with Spike Lee, about a brand new film about the Negro Leagues. It's called The League, and it is the comprehensive documentary about Negro League baseball. Sam Pollard is with us today. Between 1990 and 2010, Mr. Pollard edited a number of Spike Lee's films, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, which has one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. Girl 6, which has another one of the best soundtracks of all time. Clockers, Bamboozled, which since Spotify is already going to make me take this out, has one of the most obscure print songs of all time. Flash forward, 2045, what did you stand for in the life of your prime? Sam Pollard and Spike Lee co-produced a number of documentary productions for the small and big screen. Four Little Girls, a feature-length documentary about the 1963 Birmingham church bombings, which was nominated for an Academy Award. When the Levees Broke, a four-part documentary that won numerous awards, including a Peabody and three Emmy Awards. Five years later, in 2010, he co-produced and supervised the edit on the follow-up to Levees' If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. In 2020, he was one of the directors on the 2020 HBO series Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children. It's an incredible body of work. This film draws from the recollections of Bob Motley, former umpire of the Negro Leagues. Also, on-camera commentary by Negro League ballplayers, including Hank Aaron, Satchel Paige, Buck O'Neill, and Monty Irvin, as well as dedicated historians and scholars of the Negro Leagues. And before we hear from the acclaimed director, let's check out the trailer for The League, which is available on Apple, Amazon, and anywhere you can rent or buy movies. Negro Leagues baseball was so popular that black churches would move their service time up an hour so fans could go to the game. If you know anything about the black church, you'll mess with service time. There were African-American professional ball players in the 19th century. But segregation starts to tighten its hold. Well, what do you do? We can do this on our own. A few entrepreneurs see that a black club can be a successful business. Rube Foster, light years ahead of his time. Effa Manley. The first lady of black baseball. Negro Leagues players made the game more up-tempo, button-run, base-stealing, these incredibly acrobatic catches. The major leaguers would say that the Negro Leagues didn't play the game the right way. Really, that was saying they didn't play the game the white way. It's you and me against the world. Wherever you had successful black baseball, you typically had thriving black economies. You have vendors and you have advertising. You know, people were making money from it. But integration was going to kill their businesses. It was good morally, but that progress came at a cost. White fans 
saw a kind of baseball they had never seen before. The great ball players of the leagues. Jackie Robinson. Buck Leonard. Satchel Paige. Willie Mays. Cool Papa Bell. Hank Aaron. Oscar Charleston. Joshua Gibson. Would transform the game. They are a part of a movement. Before we coined the term civil rights movement. Man, they didn't care about making no history. They just wanted to play ball. But the pride, the passion, the courage in the face of adversity, that's the real story. Sam, first of all, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Congratulations on the league and congrats on your uh, illustrious career. Uh, tell Thank me, you, uh, whose idea is this documentary? Whose idea was this? Is this your brainchild? Did somebody come to it with you? How did this all come about? Somebody came to me with the idea, a gentleman named Byron Motley, based out in California. His dad had been a Negro League umpire. His name was Bob Motley, and uh, they had written the book together about his father's adventures as a Negro League ball player and his love of Negro League baseball. And also, Byron had over the years shot a series of interviews with former Negro League players, and uh, he had that also in his uh, in his toolkit. And uh, he said, I really would like you to direct this documentary about my dad and about the Negro Leagues. And I was really excited to do it because I had been a huge baseball fan growing up in the 60s, and I knew a little bit about the Negro Leagues back then. You know, uh, I knew about Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson. So we started that long journey that always happens with documentaries to raise the funds to find someone who would support the film. And we were very fortunate after about five years of beating the bushes, we were able to bring on Radical and then funders like 2929, Magnolia and Play Action to help make this film happen. You know, and uh, it was a long journey, but one that turned out to be very satisfying. That's, that's great. Um... I remember talking to the late, great Buck O'Neill about the Negro Leagues. And in interviews, he was a showman. You know, what I always thought, he, he I almost thought he was trying to sell it. Um, but off camera or off microphone, he was always amazed by the talent level. The talent level of the Negro Leagues is what I hope that you guys found in this treasure trove of footage and, and and interviews and things like that just how high the level of talent was during that time because historical records don't tell a story you guys can tell the story and what buck o'neill used to say it was just it was so much better than anybody remembers well it was deep i mean there were it was a deep sort of uh level of players who came up. You had people like Buck Leonard. You had people like Cool Papa Bell. You had Josh Gibson. You had Ray Dandridge. You had Max Manning. You had Monty Irvin. You had Larry Doby. You know, the list goes on and on and on of all these great players who played the game. And, uh, you know, it was just special to be able to finally, you know, tell these stories to the depth that we we're able to tell them, to bring out things and nuances in the stories that no one had ever heard before or seen before to be able to find footage from a lot of these Negro League aficionados who loved the game so much, but who had also had their own cachet of stills and news headlines and footage that they gave us access to. So it all helped in shaping the story. 
and forgive me, it, it was just from the trailer, but it looked like you had the use of animation to kind of offset, you know, if it's a lot of stills, you're trying to make the, the, the movie flow and, you know, you have a certain pace to your documentaries. I've seen other documentaries you've done, you know, what was, how did you attack the idea of how do we show things that we simply don't have, or how do we accentuate things that we do have? Well, you know, if, if I had done this film, you know, set 20 years ago, I would have been, it would have just probably been the interviews and archival footage. And That's stills. a fair point, yeah. But here we are in 2023 and, you know, my uh, cinematic tastes have expanded. And we both, we all felt from myself to my story producer, Robin Espinola, to my editor, Dave Marcus, to our executive producers, Chin Isaacson and, and Dave Saronic that... We want to bring a little more panache to the telling of the story. And when they used the term panache, we said, okay, we got the archival footage, we got the interviews. What about some animation to help tell some of these stories that we couldn't tell without some way of doing it cinematically? So that's that led to the idea of finding someone to animate the stories. And then we decided, let's not only have animation, but let's go down to Birmingham. Let's go to Rickwood Stadium. Let's find some college kids who play baseball that's who they are okay yeah, yeah and to have them emulate and play the way some of those negro league ball players played back in the 20s and the 30s and so that led us to do these recreations in in birmingham and it was uh it would it took us three 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 days three and a half days to do those recreations and we went all out in terms of costuming in terms of making sure these players knew how to play the game to play with the mitts from that period you know, to make it feel as as uh, period uh, appropriate as possible. That must have been so much fun for them. I mean, it must have been a thrill for you guys, but what a thrill for them to be able to put those uniforms on. It was a thrill for those baseball players. The museum in players. Kansas City, the, the museum that I've been to, the the idea of it, it's so colorful. The footage is, I mean, again, no disrespect, <laughs> The footage is all black and white. You know, the footage is is grainy. Yeah. The the colors of the baseball, it's not just the green grass, it's the uniforms and whatnot. And for those guys to be able to put on those kinds of uniforms and like you said, the mitts and things like that, what a thrill for those kids. It was a thrill. The only thing you had to deal with is most of those costumes were wool, man. So they were hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, oh, you hot. guys went real authentic. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was fun. But it was fun. It was absolutely fun. I mean, and you can tell, I mean, we had a good time out there shooting that stuff, you know. And we shot much more than, than, than that's than, than that's even seen in the film. Oh, really? I, I can oh, just yeah, yeah, we shot a lot. Well, because you have to have it accentuate whatever footage, you have to match it with whatever footage you actually have. That's exactly right. And your career as an editor, I mean, that that's like your wheelhouse. I mean, that's that's kind of like what you've done. You, you, you've been able to match things, uh, you know, that, that, that's that's kind of like that's probably why they looked at you or one of the many reasons why they looked at you and said, wow, to be able to interweave old stuff with new stuff. That's what makes this whole thing appealing. And, and that gets back to pacing. If you have the new stuff, you can pace this correctly. Exactly. You, you understand that. Exactly right. And I had a, a really wonderful editor who was really in sync with me and brought his own level of creativity to the material named Dave Marcus. 
What was the reaction from uh, today's players, more specifically uh, the recently retired players? You know, I, I worked for Major League Baseball in the 2000s uh, and I covered baseball for 26 years. And one of the things that I always uh, was fascinated by was the decline of the African-American baseball player. You know, in the 70s, baseball was 38% black. And at one point, I think we were doing a study in 2007, I think it was less than 4%. Yeah. And guys like Curtis Granderson and CeCe Zabathia and Latroy Hawkins and Torrey Hunter, I'm just throwing names off the top of my head, yeah, yeah, of sure. guys that I used to hang out with, you know, they used to talk about all the, there's the variety of reasons why there's less players now, you know, whereas in the Jackie Robinson era, it was just the opportunity, you know, it was just, it was, that's, that's all it was, was the opportunity. Um, but, but what's your, what's your thought on all of that? And just, just the, the evolution of the African-American baseball player. Cause there's like seven different reasons that I've been given. I'm curious to get your thoughts. Well, here's my take. I mean, think think back to 1947 when when Jackie integrated Major League Baseball. Baseball was America's number one sports part, you know, you know, a game that everybody loved. Everybody watched it. Now we fast forward to the 70s and the 80s. Baseball is no longer America's pastime, really. The number one America's pastime. And two other games, two other sports you know, become sort of head and shoulders above baseball, and that's football and basketball. Mm -hmm. And what happens in these communities, in communities of color, black communities, the young people, they don't play as much baseball as they did in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. They play basketball. The tempo of the world, the tempo of the times have changed. So if you want to be involved in a game that's got a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, motion, it's either basketball or football. And then... You know, major leagues, they were, you know, they their outreach was to places like Dominican Republic and to Puerto Rico and to Venezuela and to Colombia, where young people out there in those countries, you know, were much more attracted to baseball. So you, you saw an influx of more Latino players in the game than African-American players. You know, my sons, when they were young, one of them played Little League for about three or four years. The other one only really played T-ball and didn't, didn't play much Little League. So the, the, the impact of outreach is, is diminished into Black communities. And the excitement about baseball isn't the same as if someone says, you want to play basketball? It's a different tempo, a different game. So those are one of the, that's one of the main reasons that it's not as attractive anymore. More of Sports with Friends in just a moment. But first, we have a special announcement coming up at the beginning of August. Dr. K, Dwight Gooden, is coming on the podcast. 1985 NL Cy Young Award winner, New York Met Hall of Famer, four-time All-Star, and the author of the 1996 No-Hitter with the New York Yankees. Doc is working with a new company called Imbue CBD. Imbue CBD makes products that actually work and make a difference in the lives of the people and pets who use them. That's right, pets. The founders of Imbue CBD have nearly three decades of experience in the cannabis and healthcare industries and are passionate about utilizing their expertise and know-how to deliver exclusive proprietary products designed, to designed and envisioned to provide outstanding results. 
I spoke to Doc about why Imbue CBD is helping him with his continued recovery from addiction. Well, the CDB I'm involved in now, uh, I understand. I've been through a lot, obviously, with addiction. So now I know what pain feels like. I know what pain looks like. So anything I can do with that, helping others that's going through it, with the CBD, the stuff I take, you know, it's for, it helps me sleep. Uh, my mind's always going. And it just helps me feel better, healthy-wise, help to think better, and everything is good. To see what products they have available and to get 30% off your order, use Doc's code DG16. I don't have to explain why, right? I-M-B-U-E-C-B-D.com and use the code DG16 for 30% off. And don't forget, August 2nd, episode 414 of the podcast. Dwight Gooden, right here on Sports with Friends. Now back to the show. Do you sense, like so many people who have been on this show uh, have talked about, I'll just give you a case in point. I, I never ask a guest their age, but uh, you're a little older than I am. Um, I'm, I'm, in my, I'm, I'm in my 40s. When I'm in my 70s, the people who are in their teens now don't yeah. have the passion that you or I did ha- growing up. When I was growing up, baseball was it. And when I was starting my broadcasting career, I gravitated toward baseball because I thought it was the thinking man's sport. And I thought I would sound smarter if I covered baseball. That's literally why, why I did it. And, and I, and I believed it. I worry that in those 30 years, the kids today, the, the, the 15 year olds now, you know, there are, there are some that like the game, but they don't really now. And What's going to happen to it? What, what, what do you see happening to it? Well, if people think of it this way, Seth, if the new rules in the game can increase the tempo of the game, shorten the length of the game, it may attract younger people. I mean, I'm much older than you. And so I grew up in the 60s and baseball was number one in my house. You can say that. I can't say that. Yeah. That's, so it's, it's, it's like podcasting rules. Yeah, I know. It's a different world. It's a different world now. I mean, I took my daughters who were in their 20s to their baseball games when they were in their teens, and they hated it because they felt it was just too too slow. Oh, Dad, how can you watch this game? Nothing's happening. And like you, I love baseball because you could you could walk out of the tunnel onto a field and your eyes would go, Pah. you see a green field, your eyes would go, wow. You sit in the stands, you'd get a beer, you get some hot dog, you have your scorecard, you'd sit there and you'd mark up your scorecard and you'd watch the tempo of the game. You'd watch the tempo of the people watching the game. I loved it. And I and I moved to Baltimore a year ago and I lived down the street from Camden Yards. Oh, beautiful wife and, That's a beautiful ballpark. Yeah, my wife and I went to a couple of games and just sitting there, man, I love the experience. But I'm not sure, we live in a world now but that kind of patience <laughs> is very small. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what this what these new rules do for the game. Um, a lot of times, I'm a big music nut. And I'll give you a case in point. Uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, it's a great film. Uh, they, they did a great job. There's so many factual inaccuracies in it. For example, Freddie Mercury didn't have AIDS when he performed at Live Aids, Live Aids. Oh, yeah. But in the movie, okay. he did. 
So now history tells, you know, history will tell the next generation that Freddie Mercury had AIDS when he when he performed at Live Aid. That's that's now going to be the definitive. We just had Mark Mulder, the former uh, Oakland A's pitcher on the podcast, and he would, you know, in the movie Moneyball, they barely talk about Barry Zito, Tim Hudson and Mark Mulder. And that's what kids are going to know, because that movie is on streaming services and that's what they're going to see. When you set out to make this documentary, how much of a balance is it to make sure that it is a historically accurate and entertaining? It's a dance, you know, as a, <laughs> as a documentary, you're trying to be historically accurate, but trying to keep the audience engaged. Now, is there some people that we could have probably dug into a little more? Yes, but only if we had had the material and footage to do it. You know, so it's always a dance. I mean, sure. you try not to be historically inaccurate, is my opinion. You try to fact check all your historical facts. And, uh, you it's know, it's got to be I, so hard, though, with with, with the time period hard. that you're talking it's always about. Hard. It's always hard. And sure, there must be someone who will come out of the woodwork and say, you didn't deal with my uncle, who was a great catcher who played for, you know, the sure. the the. Kansas City, you know, monarchs, you know, or you didn't deal with this person who was really so special for the Newark Eagles. I mean, that happens, you know. Sure. So you try to be accurate, but you know that when you tell this history in documentaries, you can't always put everything in that you would put into a book. You just can't. I was reading, uh, I want to have some fun as we wrap this up. Uh, I was reading that you uh, feature in the documentary both legends, uh, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. Were you able to speak to them for the documentary? No, um, we, no, they were, it was from archival footage. Okay, you know, you know, man, it would have been a pleasure for me to sit in front of Willie Mays or Hank Aaron. Sure. I mean, I had just finished recently. I just finished watching Nelson George's documentary on Willie Mays, mm. and that, oh, that it's a great. It's on a, a, a HBO, HBO Max or whatever yeah. the that's Max called. now. Yeah, yeah, it had to be a real pleasure for him to sit in front of Willie Mays, man. That's a that yeah. would have been like an honor. He's a me. great storyteller. Oh, um, he is. Well, the story that I, I, I'm telling, and this is more for the audience, uh, if anybody has followed my career, uh, about 2009 or 2010, uh, I was at, you remember the restaurant Sweet Tomatoes? The, yeah, the, the chain, right? It's like a salad bar place in Florida and Georgia, like all, all over the South. And I was in Florida covering spring training. And I go to, to, to get a salad and I go to sit to eat lunch. And as I'm sitting there, Hank Aaron is sitting in the in the in the restaurant. And I had interviewed him a, like a dozen times and he recognized me and he said, are you here by yourself? And I said, yes. And he invited me to sit with him. He was by himself. And That's I had nice. lunch. I swear. To, I swear on my children. I had lunch with Hank Aaron. I came back. I was doing Sirius XM at the time. There is not a human being that believed me. Nobody believes you? Nobody believes me. Oh. I'm telling it on this podcast. I had lunch with Hank Aaron. And when Hank Aaron passed, that was everything that when I tweeted, you know, rest in peace. And I, I'm so sorry. He was oh. a baseball legend. People were like, you didn't have lunch with him. I did have lunch with Hank Aaron. <laughs> wow. Um, be before I let you go, I, I would I would lose my my well, first of all, I'd lose my purple card if I if I didn't ask you this. You edited two movies with two of the all time greatest soundtracks uh, of all time. Jungle Girl Fever. Six. 
Girl Jungle six. Fever and Girl Six. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Girl Six. Well, of course. <laughs> well, the t- two of the biggest fun moments for me in either for those either from either of those films was the opportunity to sit in a screening room showing a rough cut of the film on the one hand in 90 in Los Angeles to Stevie Wonder oh. who's who sat you know sat and watched the whole yeah, right, film I'm sure <laughs> and then in 1996 was was with girl 6 girl 6 yep we was screening in New York City and Spike invites Prince to come uh-huh. and Prince is sitting through the whole film and it was like I don't think Prince said three sentences, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, that was, I love that score in that film. I mean, that's that's a great thing about that film, Prince's score. Yeah. Uh, Girl Six is, a, is, is, is not, it's not a greatest hits album. It's a deep cuts album. You have, oh, yeah. yeah, Don't Talk to Strangers is on that album. That's a, that's a great, it's yeah, a great yeah. album. And Jungle is, Fever. Is that- is a great soundtrack that I, I know everybody likes to talk about songs in the key of life. Jungle Fever is top top two of it's my favorite score. Stevie Wonder albums. Yeah, it's a great score, a great score. And don't talk to strangers. Like, wow, wow, that's a great song, right? Shaka yeah. Khan remade it in 1998, but the she Prince did. version, yeah, I didn't know she did. Wow. Yeah, Prince, but uh, Prince's version is is great. The Cross is in that album. There's some some great cuts in the Girl Six soundtrack. Uh, now you got me. I gotta go play it again now. <laughs> well, yeah. So now I'm thinking we have to do a whole nother podcast one day. Just on that, on, on we could do a whole music podcast on, on, on another time. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. I I had to wait till the end because if I went down the rabbit hole. In the beginning, we would we, we, we wouldn't have touched the Negro Leagues. Now we've been talking about Prince. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, I worked with him in uh, 2013. It was a very different time in his career. You know, 1996, he was still having the fight with the record company and things like that. And you know, it was a, a very different time. Um, you know, I thought, when did when did he? You got it to your right behind your right shoulder is the his sign, you know. Yeah, he um okay, I'll take this out of the podcast. He uh he gave that to me. He um in 2013 when I worked with him, I met him at City Winery in New York and um that's a uh, record player protector. You know the turntable. Oh yeah, sure. Protector? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't have a turntable. <laughs> so I hung it and uh when COVID hit and I got a new monitor, it showed up in the image. You know, I used to have a little webcam and it would never be seen. And then it showed up. It's been there the whole time since 2013, wow. but I now I just leave it there and it's kind of a conversation piece. A lot of times so, when people come on the podcast, they see it and then they 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 ask questions like you did. So so here's a question. I mean, I yeah. know this is never going to get to the podcast. What is the difference between Prince in terms of what he was going through in 1996 and by 2013? In 1996, it was uh, his wife was either pregnant or they had lost the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had just left his record company. He had changed his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emancip- you know, th- that's around the time of Emancipation, the album. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but before that, he's, he released an album called Chaos and Disorder. Uh-huh. That was my senior year in college. And uh, yeah, that was a- to me, 90s Prince is better than 80s Prince. I, I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Um, 90s Prince, after he changed the name, 
and he became an independent artist and he wasn't conforming to record companies. He was releasing stuff. There was stuff he only released in, in England and you, you could only get it in like the village in New York City. Like there was, it was all different things, not, not the, the album a year, like the eighties, you know, when, when, and, you know, I was a little young for that. And, you know, my mother didn't love, you know, his lyrics and, and what, whatnot, but in two, you know, in 2000, things changed. He, he got religious and, you know, he, he started doing different things. So by the time I met him, he was very into technology. Yeah. Sam, I know you guys had the big premiere. And I saw the the photos of it. I have, it looks fantastic. Uh, how can people find it? Uh, where is it going to be? Is it going to be theatrical? Is it going to be on streaming services? What? How can people find the lead? The film will premiere theatrically July seventh for a few days, probably a week, and then it'll be on streaming services after that. So you can go to Amazon or Hulu, or whatever, to stream it and see it. You know, uh, and tell all your listeners that they should have a, go out and see this film because it will be an eye-opener about Negro League Baseball and 20th Century America. Ah, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. Like I said, it's something that we'd only read about and we'd heard about. Like I said, Buck O'Neill used to show up at the All-Star Game every year and he would talk and talk and talk and talk about it. It was always like he was selling it to us and it was amazing. And then when the museum opened uh, and they had the civil rights game, uh, we would see all these different things. And then when Buck O'Neill passed, um, it's really great that you guys are putting on a definitive volume of this era of baseball. It's, an era, it's not just an era of baseball, it's an era of sport and Exactly right. I'm looking for, I, I can't wait to see it. Thank you, Seth. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate My it. My pleasure. Bye. The great Sam Pollard. And if we had more time, I would talk to him much more about his career and the length of it. Look, not everything is just about sports, right? Next week, we are going to talk to an old friend of mine, a guy I did one of my first MLB shows with, a uh, great reporter for MLB.com, Jonathan Mayo. Still on the podcast, we have uh, Dwight Gooden. We also have Sarah Langs coming up. She, of course, a great reporter, both for, for at first for ESPN, now with uh, Major League Baseball as well. And she's also battling ALS and has been a spokesperson for that horrific illness that I am all too close to. Sarah Langs will be on the podcast in the next couple of weeks as well. Exciting things. Please make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, however you get your podcasts. We do have a new episode comes out each and every Wednesday. We'll see you then. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go to stay here, I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt, that's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile. Come on, please, I'm gone. Forget to reach my phone, because I promise I'll be gone for a while. When you see me again, I hope that you have been the kind of person.